Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At this hour, 76,475 people in the United States, 76,475 have now died from coronavirus. 1.2 million in the U.S. are infected, including now two people who work closely with President Trump and Vice President Pence. Today, in fact, we learned that Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller, has tested positive for the virus. This comes in addition to the man we learned about yesterday of a personal assistant to the president being infected. Uh, Those two apparently uh, a result of the routine surveillance testing that happens at the White House. President Trump said today that, quote, she, meaning Katie Miller, tested very good for a long period of time. And all of a sudden today she tested positive. The president went on to say this is why the whole concept of tests aren't necessarily great. The tests are perfect. And then something can happen, unquote. But that doesn't actually make any sense. The testing has meant now that the White House knows that Katie Miller has contracted coronavirus And they're isolating her from others so it doesn't spread at the White House. President Trump's own health officials say the opposite of what President Trump just said, that this is why surveillance testing is needed to prevent the spread. Take a listen to Dr. Deborah Birx on CNN last night. It's important to test those with symptoms, but really to get out there and proactively monitor. I really want to emphasize over and over again that this asymptomatic spread is key. We have to be able to find it. Of course, there is routine testing happening at the White House looking for exactly what Dr. Deborah Brooks was just talking about, asymptomatic carriers to prevent the spread. There is not, however, that same thing for you. There is not widespread routine surveillance testing happening across this country as Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and other health officials want. Wouldn't you feel much safer and in fact be much safer about going to work or sending your kids to school or sending your kids to camp if those places were able to make an effort to proactively test folks there to make sure there are no asymptomatic carriers and if there are to isolate those with the virus from everybody else? That's what they do at the White House. But for whatever reason, President Trump refuses to invoke the Defense Production Act to allow far more widespread testing of asymptomatic individuals. Plus, today, more news out of the Trump administration breaking this afternoon. The investigative office reviewing the whistleblower complaint filed by the administration's former vaccine chief, Dr. Richard Bright, determined there is reason to believe Dr. Bright was removed directly as retaliation. The agency has also said that Dr. Bright should be reinstated pending a full investigation. And we will have more on this breaking news in a minute. But let's start with the White House today. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me now. And Caitlin, it's clear now this White House is not immune to exposure. Uh, This morning, President Trump revealed that the valet who tested positive this week was in the office with him on Tuesday. And of course, just minutes ago, he said publicly it, it was Vice President Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller, 
who tested positive. What, what more do we know about her contact with the vice president and the president? Well, Jake, Katie Miller is an incredibly visible presence inside the West Wing. She's obviously the vice president's press secretary. She often accompanies him to meetings. She attends meetings herself in the West Wing, and she also goes with him to those coronavirus task force meetings typically. And of course, she is also married to the president's senior immigration advisor, Stephen Miller. So that throws another wrench in this as to raising questions of to just what the contact, the possible exposure could be inside the West Wing, which of course is raising questions about the president himself. And we are sitting, seeing this week, Jake, just how close to home the coronavirus, coronavirus is really hitting for the White House. There is now a second reported case of coronavirus at the White House in two days. She's a wonderful young woman. Uh, Katie, she tested uh, very good for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden today she tested positive. President Trump confirming today that Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary has tested positive, causing Air Force Two to sit on the runway for an hour this morning as six staffers who may have been in contact with her deplaned before Pence's trip to Iowa. Katie Miller is married to another senior staffer in the West Wing, Stephen Miller, raising questions about coronavirus protocol in the White House. Uh, we, we've already put in a few protocols that we're looking at, obviously, to make sure that the president and his immediate staff stay safe. A senior administration official said earlier that Miller had tested negative yesterday, then positive today after showing no symptoms. The press secretary wasn't scheduled to be on Pence's trip, and he continued on to Iowa with multiple other staffers and lawmakers in tow. The news comes on the heels of President Trump's personal valet also testing positive, raising concerns about his and the vice president's possible exposure. I can just tell you that we've taken every single precaution to protect the president. Trump announced today that his valets will now wear masks, but he won't say why few other staffers do. Is there a reason why people just aren't wearing masks at the White House? Well, they are. Uh, people that not, No, people that are serving me are. We have not people... seen anyone wear a mask around you, sir, in the last yeah. few weeks. The president himself didn't wear a mask as he visited the World War II Memorial today for a wreath-laying ceremony with a group of veterans in their 90s. It was their choice to come here, and I can tell you that the president always puts the safety of our veterans first. Trump was in the middle of an interview on Fox News this morning when the nation learned that 20.5 million Americans had lost their jobs in April, sending the unemployment rate soaring to 14.7 percent, the worst level seen since the Great Depression. It's fully expected. There's no surprise. Everybody knows that. Somebody said, oh, look at this. Well, no. Even the Democrats aren't blaming me for that. The numbers reveal the scope of the damage that the coronavirus pandemic has done. Analysts have warned it could take years to recover, though Trump's aides are trying to put a positive spin on it. This president is the jobs president. This president got us to a place where we had the lowest employment rate in the history of this country. Now, Jake, Rick Bright is that vaccine chief who was pushed out of his job. He filed a formal complaint this week, and now we have a new development with that because the investigative office that's looking into his complaint now says that early on they do believe that he may have been removed from his job as part of retaliation, which, of course, he alleged in that very lengthy complaint that we brought you earlier this week. And they are requesting that the Department of Health and Human Services reinstate him in his position as this vaccine chief for the next 45 days as they continue to look into his complaint further. Though we should note so far, HHS has not commented on this, so it's not clear where this is going. 
But it is notable that so far for this early look, this office does believe he should be putting back in his job for the time being. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN chief political correspondent Dan Abash uh, to discuss uh, this news of two White House staffers now testing positive for coronavirus mm-hmm. uh, at the White House. And, and Dana, like, first of all, obviously on a human level, this is sad. We wish uh, the Navy officer uh, who serves President Trump and Katie Miller with the vice president's office, we wish them both speedy recoveries. We hope that they, they are Absolutely. healthy and, and remain asymptomatic first and foremost. But Beyond that, you can't ignore the symbolic concern here, too. The vice president is the man in charge of the coronavirus task force. Uh, Communication is a major part of that. His press secretary now has coronavirus. She's supposed to be helping with the messaging around how to stay safe. Dana? That's right. And it's the message that is coming out as part of this without having to say it just because of this event is that it's really hard to stay safe. And it really uh, does crystallize the fact that despite the fact that the vast majority of states are beginning to reopen, most of them in defiance of the administration's own guidelines, uh, that it, it, it is very, very difficult to stay away from this virus, even when you are in what should be the safest building on the planet. That is the White House and the White House complex. Uh, As you said, this isn't just uh, Katie Miller. It's the valet we heard about yesterday uh, and her as well. And it is because they have the luxury of having tests because of the valet testing positive. Uh, There are now tests being conducted pretty much on a daily basis. And that is why Katie Miller found out that she uh, is positive, whereas just the day before she was negative. And it shows just how quickly things can change for any individual, no matter who you are and no matter how close you are uh, to the levers of power. And that is the message that is being communicated here uh, by the person who is supposed to be the messenger and in charge of messaging for the broader uh, coronavirus strategy. But in addition to that, we're also seeing surveillance testing in action, working. I mean, President Trump presumably is safe and has not contracted coronavirus uh, because they're doing regular testing on individuals. And when they test positive, you you isolate them uh, and uh, you get them away so it doesn't spread. Meanwhile, we've seen President Trump resist wearing a a mask in public. Uh, Vice President Pence, when he visited the Mayo Clinic, also resisted wearing a mask, although since then he has gone on to wear a mask at a different Event. Now, now, look, White House officials get tested often, so I understand the risk is is low. Uh, but do you think that this is going to change at all, the president's reluctance to wear a mask in public? No, I really don't. In fact, I just was making some calls to ask that very question before coming on with you, Jake, uh, thinking the answer was probably no. And I was right. At least the people I talked to who really know the president say that it is highly unlikely that he will change his practice. Uh, for a lot of reasons. But the f- first and foremost, he just doesn't want to be photographed that way. And, you know, it is an example setting question. He is not setting the example, again, that his, his administration is putting out there in their own guidelines. Uh, but it just is unlikely, according to the people I talk to, and I'm guessing you're hearing the same, Jake, that he's going to change anytime soon, even with this news. Look, and again, I just want to reiterate, we wish the best to Katie Miller. We wish the best to the Navy officer. 
But once again, this idea of surveillance testing for the White House, but not for the rest of the country, uh, seems to be a problematic testing for me, but not for thee. Uh, and that really could be a problem for the White House going forward. Yeah, it could be. And look, this is why talking about testing from two months ago till today and ramping up testing is so incredibly critical. And we have had mixed messages from the president and vice president and even some of the medical professionals about how critical testing is. And this is just proof, you're exactly right, that the reason this was caught is because of very quick, very, uh, uh, very important on-site testing that in order to have a safe society, you're going to have to have it across the board nationwide. And there's still a reluctance to do it. Dana Bash, thank you so much. As always, uh, coming up, who gets some of the limited supply of this promising new drug, Remdesivir? We're going to talk to a top doctor who's sharing her hospital supply with other hospitals. Plus, as states scramble to secure personal protective equipment, spending hundreds of millions of dollars, Some of that money and some of the equipment, rather, wasn't showing up. A CNN investigation ahead. Two categories of numbers today painting a picture of unimaginable pain and devastation in the United States from coronavirus. First, 76,475 deaths and 1.2 million confirmed positive with coronavirus. An incredible amount of suffering there. Second, 20 million. That's the number of people out of work last month with an unemployment rate nearing, nearing 15% as the U.S. continues to face this difficult balance of lives and livelihoods. At least 47 states will partially reopen by the end of the weekend, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. I have two teenagers to raise up. We have to keep up the good spirit, but we're all scared. More than 20 million American jobs vanished in April alone. The worst jobs report in American history. In only 15 states are new case counts consistently falling, but still 47 states are at least now partially reopening through the weekend. Some restrictions remain, which not everyone likes. I have a right to buy groceries without being forced to participate in your terrorism. Excuse me. You need to wear a mask. Do you understand that? To come You're in the violating store? my constitutional Okay, well, rights. this is private property. But today, bars can reopen in Alaska. Dentists in Iowa now back in business. Bowling alleys in Tennessee. Tomorrow, restaurants can open in Nevada and campgrounds in North Dakota. Montana opened some schools yesterday. Now, movie theaters will follow a week from today. What's concerning here is that this is an experiment. No one knows what's going to happen. In Texas... Hair salons, now a go. We're about nine and a half feet apart, each chair, and then each chair will be disinfected after each service. There is a potential problem with such uneven openings. A new study of cell phone data found that after Georgia started opening earlier than surrounding states, more than half a million people traveled into Georgia every day, a 13% spike. There's spread potential. As this Tyson meat processing plant reopens in Waterloo, Iowa, the number of confirmed cases among workers more than doubled to over a thousand. One worker reluctantly returning today told CNN he has no choice. I can't beat Donald Trump and Tyson. Both of them are billionaires. I'm not a billionaire. I'm broke. 
Good news, the NFL just laid out a full schedule for the fall. Unclear if there'll be fans in the stands. Spectatorless sports, we can add that term to the lexicon with uh, flattening the curve, social distancing. Social distancing enforcement, by the way, clearly a work in progress. This arrest in New York City has sparked an internal investigation. And Brooklyn's DA tells CNN that of the 40 people arrested for not social distancing through Monday, 35 were black, four Hispanic, just one white person. When we see disparity, we're going to address it. Still no vaccine, of course, and remdesivir, that drug found to shorten COVID hospital stays by about four days. Well, there are only about 200,000 courses available right now. I think there was that excitement and then there was... Uh, sadness and disappointment. Every day you don't get a drug, it means that more patients are potentially going to do badly. And Jake, a massive day of reopening here in California. The governor claims that 70% of the economy is now back open, but the retail that opened today, including uh, toy stores, is just curbside pickup. So here at the Brentwood Country Mart, they have hired an army of runners to bring merchandise to you in your car. Another big headline from here. Every registered voter in California will get a mail-in ballot this year. As the Secretary of State said, this could be the most consequential election of our lifetime. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. We're joined now by Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Uh, She's the Chief of Infectious Diseases at Mass General. Uh, Dr. Walensky, uh, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Doctors and pharmacists on the front lines are telling CNN that they're frustrated by the limited supply of remdesivir and the lack of transparency over who gets it, um, as determined by the Trump administration. Your hospital, as I understand it, received 1,000 doses of this drug. Um, Explain how and why you decided to share that with other Boston hospitals that were denied completely. Good afternoon, Jake. Um, yeah, we were we uh, logged on to the website on Tuesday and learned on Tuesday that we would be receiving this drug. That evening, I had some conversations with my colleagues in different hospitals around the city, and it became very clear that we were the only hospital in the city um, and one among uh, one of four in the state of Massachusetts to the receive the drug. Um, we had hypotheses about why we might have gotten it, whether because we were involved in the clinical trial, we might have preferentially gotten it, um, but those hypotheses hypotheses didn't bear out. And so it became very clear that um, we were selected. We don't know why. Um, But there were a lot of vulnerable patients um, in hospitals around the city and around the state. And we did not feel like we alone should be the ones, um, the ones alone who received the drug. I want to be very clear. We have about 240 patients with COVID in the hospital right now. We had courses for about 173 of them. So we already given what we were given, didn't have enough for the patients we had under our roof today. Um, That being said, um, we decided um, as a hospital, as an administration, I'm very proud to say, to share it among the city, to give it to the state so that they could equitably um, disperse it uh, based on patient load across the state. And the three other hospitals who received it followed suit. Well, that's uh, quite altruistic uh, of you and Mass General. It's probably too early to determine any results, but are you seeing any results uh, from the remdesivir in the patients that you've given it to? Right. So we received it Tuesday. It's being distributed now. It'll be given probably today and tomorrow. So, yes, it's too early for us to be able to say. Okay. I should say we received it Wednesday. 
Okay. The Department of Health and Human Services was supposed to handle uh, the delivery of the drug uh, while the White House task force approved allocation plans. Um, Just as somebody on the front lines, how would you describe the process of acquiring the drug? Uh, Well, I mean, it it arrived in our pharmacy fine. Um, How it was allocated is still a complete mystery. Um, We're very frustrated, actually, to to try and understand this. Um, Certainly, we're, you know, we in Massachusetts are now allocating it. We um, had, you know, numerous calls over the last 24 to 48 hours to make sure we were giving it out in an equitable fashion. Um, I don't know that other states are doing that, and I don't know how it's been allocated in other states, but it's been very frustrating for me and my colleagues nationwide to try and understand this. Axios is reporting that more than 32,000 doses were delivered to Indiana, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Virginia, and as we mentioned, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Axios reports that those states were picked based on outdated data about where it was needed. Um, What's your reaction to that report? Well, you know... My reaction is there's there are too many patients for the drug for the amount of drug that we have. So um, certainly you'd like to have a fair allocation process, and that was what we were trying to do in Massachusetts. As I said, comp- because the process is completely opaque, um, we really don't know. It's very hard to understand how to equitably give this drug, and and I say that um, it's been very frustrating on another level as well. And that is the indications for the drug are so wide right now. It's uh, almost everybody who's in the hospital. And because of that, um, you know, I think there's going to quickly be more patients than there is drugs. So wherever it goes, there won't be enough of it. All right, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, thank you so much. Uh, Stay in touch with us. Uh, Let us know how those patients are doing and we'll have you back soon. Great. Will do. Thank you so much. One expert says the FDA created a Wild West environment for testing, raising major questions about the accuracy of of coronavirus test results in this nation. Stay with us. Harvard's Public Health Institute says the United States should be testing nearly a million people a day by next Friday, May 15th, if there is any hope to get a firm handle on the coronavirus pandemic. Right now, roughly 200,000 people are tested every day in the U.S. And as CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta reports for us now, There is also serious concern about the accuracy and validity of some of the tests. If you've heard anything lately about tests, it's that we haven't performed enough of them in the United States. Today, everyone is so focused on getting tested, they miss the point that a bad test is worse than no test. And that may be another more fundamental problem. Just how good are the tests in the first place? The FDA basically has created a wild, wild west environment for this testing where under their approval process on an emergency basis, they've let tests on the market that basically have a very, very wide range of results. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. The quality of these tests right now vary a great deal. And that's a challenge in terms of understanding if you get a negative result, is it really negative? A molecular diagnostic test can determine if you have actual virus inside of you by drawing a sample from your nasopharynx or from your saliva by spitting into a vial like I did and then testing it for genetic traces of the virus. How well the test can find those genetic markers is known as sensitivity. If a test has poor sensitivity, it will result in too many false negative results. 
That means too many people testing negative for the virus when they are actually infected. We undertook a study where we looked at over 200 specimens and tested them by all five methods. And there are differences between these tests. Dr. Gary Prokoff is head of virology at the Cleveland Clinic. He and his team found three tests to have sensitivity over 95%. The one from the CDC, Cepheid, and Roche. Meaning they caught nearly all but 5% of cases. But the highly touted Abbott ID Now test, which can give results in minutes, missed up to 15% of infected patients. Another study found that it potentially missed 25% of infections. And that's a concern, because despite their negative test results, those people are actually infected and can still spread the virus. You would never want to use that test to screen somebody in the hospital to put them into a COVID-negative unit, because in that case, you can't afford to make a mistake. In a statement, Abbott said that the type of viral transport media, the chemical used to carry the virus sample, could be diluting samples. We immediately communicated with our customers that they should use the direct swab method. The findings of Prokof's study are still yet to be peer-reviewed. Just because we need something uh, put out emergently doesn't mean we should put out things that don't work appropriately. When asked if accuracy was sacrificed at the expense of speed, an FDA spokesperson told CNN, FDA oversight doesn't end with an EUA, or emergency use authorization. We will continue to track these tests and take action if required. Jay, for those at home, why does the quality of test vary so much? I, I think there was this big rush, uh, Jake, to get these tests out there. Uh, you know, we know that the CDC originally, that original test they put out ended up being flawed. Uh, they couldn't uh, validate some of the results. So all of a sudden it became this, this big push. And, every, you know, all these test makers uh, put their tests out there. They didn't validate these results ahead of time. They weren't asked to necessarily have to do that. That was the emergency use authorization. Now you're going through the process of going back and validating those tests. But, but Jake, I mean, some of these tests that are being widely used in some situations still have a high false negative rate. We talk a lot about the numbers of tests. Until we can make sure the tests we are doing are accurate, that may be a more fundamental problem. And Sanjay, President Trump just addressed uh, the news uh, that Vice President Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller, tested positive for coronavirus uh, today. Take a listen. Mm -hmm. She tested uh, very good for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden today she tested positive. So this is why the whole concept of tests aren't necessarily great. The tests are perfect, but something can happen. Isn't the, the lesson we've learned here the exact opposite of that? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, th there's a couple points here. Uh, one is that obviously the test can have a false negative rate. So just leaving that aside for a second, they're not perfect. They need to be better, especially the ones that are being used, you know, for, for this sort of surveillance screening. Two is that is that you can test negative at one point and then test positive the next day. It doesn't necessarily mean you became positive in between the two tests. Maybe you got exposed before and it's just now becoming, you're now just now testing positive. But here, the reason you test is that Katie, who, by the way, I know, and I, I wish her well, I hope she's not symptomatic, it doesn't sound like she is, but she needs yes, to be isolated so she doesn't continue to spread this. Her contacts need to be traced. That is, what you, that is when you start to get into the mode of containment, uh, whether it's a structure like the White House, a community, or the country as a whole, that is when you shift the strategy from just trying to slow this thing down 
to really saying, okay, now we have the virus on the run. We're containing the virus. We're boxing it in. That's why you test. And testing is absolutely critical. I would not use that example to say, hey, look, testing really is not that effective or is not that helpful. No, it's the exact opposite. It's, it's now this, it won't spread from Katie, who I agree, we, we all wish her well. Now it won't spread. And in fact, say a man in his 70s like President Trump. Um, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Burke said to you in CNN's town hall last night that the U.S. is testing about two and a half percent of the population. We're three months into this pandemic at a minimum. Is that enough progress at this point? I, I think if you look at any of these roadmaps to testing, two and a half percent is way too low. I mean, it, it just it, it is. I mean, the, people focus a lot on the absolute number of tests. Uh, the, another way to look at it is to say, um, we need to test enough people so that we're only getting 10% results back positive. In that case, you, it gives you a sense that you're testing enough people. If you're getting enough negatives, 90% of them are negatives, that means you're doing enough testing. That's another way to look at it. You uh, interviewed uh, Paul Romer, you know, the, the uh, world from the World Bank previously, and he said, you know, I mean, maybe 20 million tests a day, which sounds really audacious, but the point there is that you're basically testing uh, just about the equivalent of the country every two weeks, which is roughly the incubation period. So 2, 2% is not nearly enough, not even if that's a, a sort of a, a monthly sort of figure. All right, Sanjay, thanks so much. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. And you in too. between, be sure to listen to Sanjay's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction. It's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The worst jobs report in American history, pushing the unemployment rate to a level this country has not seen since the Great Depression. But that number can be misleading. We'll explain next. Look at this line of cars stretching for miles outside the Palace Station Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The, the casino and hotel themselves, are that's closed. But the parking lot is now a drive through food pantry. Just another sign of the desperate times for those who need help just putting food on the table. Nowhere is the evidence of this more stark than in today's jobs report, a record 20.5 million jobs lost in the month of April. And that number does not reflect the true amount of people unemployed, furloughed, suffering. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. And, and Julia, the April unemployment rate is 14.7%. But that number is a bit misleading, right? Absolutely. As bad as it is, there are just millions of people that weren't counted. For a start, you weren't added into these numbers if you weren't actively looking for a job. How do you actively look for a job during a shutdown? The Labour Department actually said today that it could have been five percentage points higher if people had actually classed themselves in many cases as unemployed rather than absent. The truth is we don't know how long those absences last and the real unemployment rate here is way higher. The Labor Department uses a survey to create the uh, the unemployment rate. The Bureau of Labor Statistics does 18 million people describe their job loss as temporary. That seems significant when determining how long a recovery might take, right? This could be the silver lining among some very dark clouds. This is almost 90 percent of people in this report saying, I'm going back to work soon. That confidence is key, but it just doesn't tie with reports that we've got from things like the Congressional Budget Office that say we'll have a 10 percent unemployment rate still at year end. This will matter, particularly if this is a slow recovery. And the recovery has to be slow in some ways because we're tackling the health crisis at the same time. That's the conundrum here. 
All right, Julia Chatterley, always great to have you on. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. President Trump today called the video of an unarmed black man being shot and killed, quote, very disturbing and said justice would be done. Gregory and Travis McMichael, two armed white men, have now been arrested and charged with the murder of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. The ar- arrests, we should point out, did not happen until 74 days after the shooting and, coincidentally, I'm sure, two days after the video was released by a local radio personality. CNN has not independently verified the video, but it is consistent with police reports. The disturbing video seen here shows Arbery jogging when the former police officer and his son chased him down and shot him in cold blood. You can hear three gunshots before Arbery falls to the ground. This morning, Arbery's father reacted to news of the arrest of the two men. It took a, a lot of release off our family because we just was devastating these killers like this in the duel or lynching mob like that to a young man. And they were still walking around here free. It was just devastating our family. Today would have been Ahmad Arbery's 26th birthday. Coming up, one individual who was reportedly recommended by the federal government got $69 million to provide ventilators to New York, and he never delivered. What what happened? Stay with us. And just one almost unbelievable example of the rush to secure medical equipment across this country, New York State paid an electrical engineer $69 million to obtain 1,400 ventilators. The Silicon Valley engineer Reportedly, he had no history of producing or selling ventilators. CNN's Drew Griffin investigates how states are granting contracts for millions of dollars to unvetted companies in the middle of this mad scramble. While coronavirus was overwhelming hospitals, governors across the country were in a mad scramble to find supplies, and a lot of people were making a lot of money. I can't tell you how many orders we placed with vendors who were acting basically as brokers, who just uh, uh, started businesses in the middle of this pandemic because they saw an opportunity. From New York to California to Louisiana, hundreds of millions of dollars in ventilators, masks, and other personal protective equipment were ordered, but some of it never showed up. After stalled deals, the governors of both California and Maryland say they are looking into deals with Blue Flame Medical, a pop-up medical supply company started by two Republican operatives. Unfortunately, across the country, there have been some cases of fraud. Uh, It is unconscionable that anyone would try to exploit this pandemic for profit or for personal gain. An attorney speaking on behalf of Blue Flame told CNN the company fully intends to honor the contract for a million and a half masks and 110 ventilators to Maryland and says that the Chinese government interfered with its ability to fulfill the shipment. In Louisiana, at the height of New Orleans' pandemic crisis, $7 million of PPE supplies never showed. The third-party supplier now being charged with defrauding the VA. Former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig says a crisis with billions of dollars being spent quickly is the perfect environment for wide-scale fraud. Anytime there's opportunity, anytime there's a pot of money, dishonest people will have their hands in it. Even in times of emergency, for some people, there's just no bottom. 
adding to the issue, the lack of federal leadership on supplies that force states to fend for themselves, scouring the Internet or relying upon unknown suppliers. Case in point, New York State. Competition among states, there were competition among private entities to get this equipment. Uh, the federal government was trying to buy it. The one that's received the most attention is a deal for 1,400 ventilators from a Silicon Valley engineer. The state paid $69 million, but the ventilators never arrived. A spokesman from Governor Cuomo's office said HHS referred us directly, confirming they were vetted and approved by the federal government themselves. The engineer behind the failed deal did not return CNN's calls, and though most of the money has been returned, $10 million is still under negotiation. As a nation, we can't go through this again. To fight fraud and better their bargaining position, New York and six other Northeast states have now joined together to stabilize the supply chain and combat the fraud that is also spreading like the virus itself. In an ideal world, you would have had the federal government stepping up earlier. Um, that's not happening, so governors are getting it done. Fact is, Jake, the federal government and a team organized of volunteers by Jared Kushner were behind that referral for that failed New York ventilator deal. So it's not just about getting federal help. It's about getting good federal help. States say they're not getting it, so they're doing it themselves. Jake. Drew Griffin, thank you so much for that. And be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to CNN's State of the Union. My guests will include White House Economic Advisor Kevin Hassett, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. It's all Sunday at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern, only on CNN. And coming up, we will remember some of the lives lost to this pandemic, including a nurse who is just days away from retirement. We want to take a moment now to remember just a couple of the tens of thousands of people we've lost in this pandemic. Dr. Joseph Francis Wethington was a county medical examiner for 25 years near Minneapolis. He was married 65 years. He had six children, 14 grandchildren. Jacqueline Harris of Southfield, Michigan, was 78 years old. Her son told CNN she came to the U.S. from Jamaica. She was a private home health care worker. 65-year-old Barbara Burchino was just days away from retirement when she died. She was a nurse at Clara Moss Medical Center in Belleville, New Jersey. It's also where she was admitted as a patient. Her son, Matthew, says that it was comforting to know that his mother was cared for by friends and colleagues. May their memories be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Today is the 30th anniversary of Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Be sure to wish him a happy anniversary. Thanks for watching. I'll see you Sunday. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.